Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. One would think with all of the technology we have today, there would be no such thing as a cold case. But we know that this is far from the truth and that some cases are doomed to remain a mystery. On October 26, 1961, a young woman was seen alive for the last time, and her death remains one of the biggest unsolved mysteries in Lexington history to this day. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On October 27, 1961, citizens of Lexington, Kentucky woke to the news of a young girl's brutal death. Betty Gail Brown, a bright and bubbly sophomore at Transylvania University, was found in her car parked outside the school's old Morrison building at 3 a.m., her own bra wrapped tightly around her neck. Betty was last seen on the night of October 26th when she left nearby Forer Hall just before midnight, placing her time of death around 1 a.m. Inside the car with her were her school books and notes, untouched, her purse, neglected, and her keys tossed into the backseat, likely by the person who attacked her. Despite her bra being the weapon of choice, Betty Brown was not raped. The case and its complete lack of motive absolutely devastated the small community. Betty, who was only 19 years old, was beloved by all those who met her, and no one could quite figure out who and why someone would want to take her life. She was a member of the Phi Moose sorority and was a Sunday school teacher, was popular, studious, 
kind and focused, a commuter student who was heading home to her parents' house just 10 minutes away before she was killed. She was an only child whose death left her parents completely shattered. In fact, just hours before she was found, her worried mother, Quincy Stanton Brown, sister of the actor, Harry Dean Stanton, took to the streets to search for Betty's car. Each time failing to turn into the old Morrison driveway because it was a spot she never knew her daughter to park near. On her third loop, she was stopped by a police officer who delivered the heartbreaking news. The press descended upon the town and soon Betty's name was in the headlines of every single Kentucky newspaper, becoming more famous in death than she ever was in life. All of which asked the same question many are still asking today. Who killed Betty Gale Brown? With so many unanswered questions swirling around the case, the city of Kentucky fell into a state of hysteria. At Betty's visitation, a classmate cried out, I know who did it. I know who did it. But would later tell police that she was just processing her death and a theory. Soon, the unknown killer became the boogeyman of Lexington, with women fearful of heading out alone and men on the edge trying to protect those that they loved. Because of this, false leads flew into the police station left and right, and suspects became abundant. Like the man who approached a woman standing on the Transylvania campus and proclaimed to be the Transylvania Strangler, or the one who pinned down his wife in their trailer and threatened to give her the same treatment as, quote, that Transylvania girl got. Then there was the recent graduate from the university who moved to New York and got a scathing write-up in the local newspaper, simply because he was a, quote, cross-dresser, and that somehow made him a likely suspect. But probably one of the worst rumors came when the whispers turned on Quincy Brown herself, who was still neck-deep in her grief and being accused of killing her own daughter. Because there was very little in the way of evidence, police followed every lead, including the alumni who moved to New York, and interviewed every single male student and faculty member of Transylvania University. Nothing. At least, not until 1965 when a man in Oregon, who was losing his battle with alcoholism, confessed to killing Betty Gale Brown. His name was Alex Arnold, though he went by a number of aliases over the years. And according to his confession, he drunkenly approached Betty's car on that night in late October and was surprised to see two women inside engaging in a passionate kiss. He asked for a light for his cigarette, at which point the two women started to cuss him out. Angry, he grabbed the closest girl, Betty, by the hair, and smashed her face onto the dashboard. When he looked up, the other girl had fled, leaving him alone with an unconscious Betty Brown. That's when he grabbed her bra and used it as a ligature to strangle her, bracing his knee on the back seat for more leverage. When he was certain she was dead, he tilted her face back to get a better look telling her what a cute little son of a bitch you are before kissing her right breast, wiping his prints, and locking the car. Alex then claimed he went to a friend's apartment, a woman named May Hedges, and the two drank together until he passed out. Now, while some of the evidence recovered did corroborate his story, things like the bruises on Betty's body, the blood on the dashboard, and an unknown woman's watch found nearby that wasn't considered significant at the time, there were definitely some questions about the validity of his story, especially after May Hedges disputed his account of that evening. 
Regardless, any frenzy that may have died down in the years since the murder sparked right back up at the idea of a suspect finally confessing to the crime. The case was set for trial, lawyers were obtained, and while Alex Arnold sat in a Lexington jail waiting for his trial, Quincy Brown came to see him. According to Alex's account, the woman looked at him coldly and said, You did not kill my daughter a sentiment he agreed with at the trial where he pleaded not guilty despite his earlier confession. As the trial progressed, the only real information, other than the confession, was the fact that the case was so widely covered in the newspapers. The defense claimed correctly that all of the information that Alex gave during his confession could be found in the hundreds of news articles published about the case. Nothing he said, other than the fact that another woman was in the car, was anything new or groundbreaking. And even that claim was called into question. Both of Betty's parents denied the claims that she was interested in women. Though considering the time period, she wouldn't have been the first person to try and hide her sexuality. But given how the public reacted to homosexuality, investigators doubted two women would get physical in such a public space. The closest lead investigators had to this claim was when a waitress, prior to Alex's confession, claimed to see Betty the night that she was killed dining with another woman. But despite being taken all around campus to Betty's funeral and to her burial, the waitress never identified Betty's companion and a few students said that they were at the same diner that night and that Betty wasn't there. All of this, coupled with the fact that Alex had spent the better half of the decade completely belligerently drunk, virtually destroyed any and all credibility that he may have had. The case, simply put, boiled down to one question. Do you believe Alex Arnold? The trial ended with a hung jury with seven voting for acquittal, and the case was declared a mistrial. Alex recanted his confession fully and claimed he dreamed the whole thing up. He died in 1980 when he was 49 years old. Many still believe he was a guilty man who got away with murder. Betty Gail Brown's case was marked cleared by arrest, but in the eyes of the public, the case is one of Lexington's greatest unsolved mysteries. So much so that on January 21st, 1988, Sergeant Fran Root sent a letter to the then Lieutenant John Bizak and instructed him to get up to speed on the cold case so that the department could handle any future inquiries. Calls were still coming in, so they wanted to make sure everyone knew the basics of the cold case. While doing so and checking out the stack of inconsistent records, John Bizak made a shocking discovery. None of the evidence introduced at Alex Arnold's trial was available for re-examination. It had all been destroyed. He also added that the archives, quote, failed to reflect the location, condition, or existence of files, materials, or evidence related to the case. Betty's case, it seems, may never be solved. In 2006, Lexington police sought the prints of a California convict, Adolf Ludenberg, who strangled four women in the 1970s. The prints, which were initially inconclusive, were ruled not a match in 2012 and confirmed in 2015. The same year that Betty's uncle retrieved her clothing and attempted to retest the DNA and yielded nothing of note. In 2008, police followed up on a frequent visitor of Betty's grave, who was 13 at the time of her murder, but nothing came of it. Basically, the leads keep coming, and so do the disappointments. 
with both of her parents now buried near her in the Bluegrass Memorial Gardens, the case of Betty Gail Brown remains a complete mystery. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on October 27th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.